The following episode contains descriptions of colonial and racist violence. Welcome to 99 Questions, where we try to decipher current discussions around restitution, colonialism, and the relationship between museums and civic societies. I'm your host, Feven. And yes, you've heard right. We're accompanying the 99 Questions discussion series at the Humboldt Forum. In the 99 Questions podcast, we will give you more insight by providing you with interviews and conversations, featuring guests from all walks of life whose expertise, work, and interests are connected to our podcast. This episode continues the dialogue of the previous 99 Questions event, Following the Trail, Provenance Research and Object Biographies, which took place on the 13th of May, 2021. Welcome, everybody. Oh, welcome back. If you have tuned in last time. The panelists time, of the evening included Miranda Lowe from the Museum of Natural History London, Alexis von Prosa from the Ethnological Museum Berlin, and the Nest Collective from Nairobi. With a top-class panel, we will debate about a post-colonial approach. Drawing from different disciplines and contexts, they expanded a discussion that mainly revolves around provenance research as the study of object biographies and their possible restitutions. Because of that, the guests questioned if provenance research should be seen as a legitimate tool at all. Instead, they pushed for faster restitution, prioritizing the positions of communities and not the claims of museums. It's important to keep in mind that people's demands to return objects to their respective communities are not new. I resonated with most of the statements the Nest Collective has made, especially considering their challenging analysis of emotionality and science. So naturally, I wanted to unpack them again today. And with that, on to our guests, Njoki and Jim from the Nest Collective. So who is the Nest? The Nest is a multidisciplinary art collective from Nairobi. Since 2012, the Nest has created works in music, film, fashion, visual arts and literature. We encourage you to visit their website, thisisthenest.com, where you can get the latest news on their ongoing and their past projects like the International Inventory Program, an international art, research and database project on Kenyan objects in Western cultural institutions, such as the Humboldt Forum. For this episode, you will hear excerpts from a conversation I had with Jim and Joki, who tuned in from Nairobi. We talked about provenance research and its connections to power and privilege, justice and legality, but also objects in relation to queerness. The matters discussed in this episode affect us, meaning black people of African descent. This is why I wanted to stress that both of our guests and myself speak from a black perspective. We kicked off our conversation by criticizing the use of provenance research as a tool of distraction. This led me to think about a quote by Toni Morrison, African-American writer, author, college professor, and legend. It's important, therefore, to know who the real enemy is and to know the function, the very serious function of racism, which is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language, and so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says that you have no art, so you dredge that up. 
Somebody says that you have no kingdoms, and so you dredge that up. So let's dive into our conversation and hear what Njoki and Jim have to say about this. We've been talking a lot about distractions and how they they derail the conversation. And the thing about provenance research for me is that it moves the labor to Europe or to America. It now becomes that the Africans should wait for provenance research to tell us how the objects will move back. Whereas the restitution question was very much centered from, from here. We are asking Europe to send things back, but provenance research is saying, wait, there is a science to this. And so our issue with with the framing of science as a tool for justice is that is that that's not how it is being framed. People are talking about science as a tool for truth, not for justice. And the problem with that is that there is no truth that is needed in this object restitution thing. The truth is clear. Objects were taken improperly and people are asking for them back. So the, if we want truth, I'd rather that Europe said, you know what, we want these things in a war and they are the spoils of war and we're going to keep them. But you kind of tread this middle line where they're like, no, we want to return them. No, we believe that we can restore justice. It's like, come on, guys, choose one position and then act on that position. Mm. I, I think I think one of my, my favorite distraction positions um, is one that asks about communal ownership. Um, so it's like, should one group of people own all, the, all these objects anyway? Um, failing to realize that the issue that we have is that currently the wrong people um, are in ownership of all of these objects, which we like to describe as being in custody, um, because they're not, they're not, they're not. They're, a lot of them are not in some of these spaces legitimately, and even the ones that are quote unquote um, there legitimately. There's a lot of issues around um, what the power dynamic was at the point in time when they were moving, um, what 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 the issues um, were uh, between the different populations of people, um, the ways in which um, these objects went, and the fact that the object transition from Africa to the global north um, and from the global south in general, it was designed to be a one-way trip. The object was always intended to be a life prisoner, um, and nobody really foresaw a point when somebody would ask for the objects back. And that's why there's all these laws, regulations, complicated and convoluted ownership structures, ETC, where like maybe the city of Cologne will say, um, so these objects are actually under the custody of the city of Cologne because of an ordinance that was written in 18 something something or early 1933 or whatever random you know, thing that they can come up with because it's like you move the object there and then you create this inextricable framework um, for to force it to stay. And so it reminds me very much of the ways in which, and Jim and I have talked about this before, um, the ways in which even, like, nobody had planned for independence as, a, as an outcome. Mm -hmm. Like, the point was that all these global North countries were going to have all these overseas properties. And you can see that because there's a bunch of global North countries that still have properties in other continents for no apparent reason. One thing that bothers me about Germany, especially when it comes to restitution of African objects, is the erasure of black and African voices within these discussions, stringing together a long line of monologues instead of starting dialogues, rendering them as useless. Listen closely to Njoki's take on these issues. 
Um, I think for us, this idea of of underrepresented voices is very much one of design. Like this co- this conversation is designed to leave out certain people. It's actively designed to leave out um, the voices of the communities um, where some of these objects directly belong because it doesn't escape. Uh, Jim and I, that we have to be members of an arts collective, which is also institutionalized to have garnered um, certain types of respectability, such that we are then able to work with museums. We are taken seriously when we do certain things. We can write letters on a letterhead and all of these other like symbols and, and performances that respectability demands when peoples themselves, have families, um, communities, villages, tribes, ethnic groups who don't necessarily organize in that way um, have been asking for these objects. People have died and, you know, generations have come and gone. Um, and all over the world, people have been asking for their objects back. And so, like, even for us, we realize that we are only here, you know, because we have the trappings of some things and that even with the trappings of these things there's also the the stuff around how we should how we should speak that we should use modulated tones um that we shouldn't be emotional um that we should ask with logic mm-hmm. you know and 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 not and not get angry even though like it's in it's infuriating mm-hmm. so mm. yeah and jim i i guess um the thing about uh don't simplify the issue because that's a thing that we've heard a lot. Like you're making it too simple. When yeah, and the thing we keep saying is that it is a simple issue. If you ask children about the justice of this thing, this child took this child's toy. Mm. Like for children, it's like give the toy back. We don't care about capacity. We don't care about provenance research. We don't want to know about the the records that say what time the thing was taken. Just give the toy back. And so Njoki and I are not here as legitimate representatives of those objects. No. We didn't make those objects. Uh, and our belonging to those objects is only by the nation state, which we didn't create. We didn't draw Kenya. We didn't name mm-hmm. Kenya. So the fact that um, Europe finds us legitimate as a voice for this question is a problem. Deeply. We are not, we, we are not legitimate representatives of the issue. No. You know what's really interesting to me? The way Jim and Joki both emphasized the role of privileges and respectability, especially navigating these spaces as a black person. White institutions expect a low number of black experts to speak for all source communities, which is virtually impossible. At the same time, these institutions historically and presently set the tone and language for what is deemed legitimate. What is deemed legitimate, you might ask? Well, everything that is performed is scientific, to which emotionality is contrasted and considered as less valid. Expertise, uh, in the name of PhDs and all these titles, are also another thing that are used to distract and delay progress on issues. Because then people say, um, I can't have a debate with you because you're not on my intellectual level. Right, and and I guess that's what we are saying when we say that just because we have vocabulary doesn't make us more legitimate to speak about this. Um, there are community leaders who don't have that vocabulary, and then they are not listened to. But they are the ones who made the objects. They are the ones who understand those objects in ways that Joki and I can never, even with our PhDs, 
And I think that we were really pushing back against this idea of provenance science because we were saying that science isn't, isn't a thing that black people have a history that they can trust because science provided the language for racism. It provided the language for colonialism. It said that our brains were smaller. It said that we didn't show signs of human development, you know, and that was all science. So when you come back to us and tell us that provenance science is the thing that's going to take us out of this situation, we're like, we're not impressed. As Jim mentioned earlier, it is critical to think about who gets to speak and why. Don't you think it's troubling that Europeans still venture off to Africa, telling Africans how to solve their own problems? Mind you, we're talking about institutions and people who inflicted most of these problems because of their ties to colonialism in the first place. Western museums are not exempt from this. In terms of provenance research and restitution, Western museums and academia are the ones who withhold the power of decision-making. On top of that, they consider themselves as sole judges for restitution processes that should be led by African voices instead. This is incredibly patronizing and infantilizes Africans, rendering them unable to solve their own problems. Let's eavesdrop on the conversation and hear what Jim and Joki have to I'm say. I'm taking positions or thinking about, like, for example, the Benin bronzes, where I was like, okay, they definitely have to go back to like Nigeria as soon as possible. But where we also have this camp in Germany of people who say things like, oh, now they're sending it back to Nigeria and like people in Nigeria can't decide who to give it to. Do they give it to the royal family? Does it belong to the public? I remember in the, first, in the second event, I think it was one of you. I think it was Jockey, but I'm not sure anymore, who said, why are we even asking these questions and also these um, distracting questions when... This is not a matter of Europe and not uh, something for Europeans to deal with, but for Nigerians to deal with. One of the things that um, has been has, has been really illuminating and insightful for, for, for Jim and I um, in this process is to just just in the very in the exact same way you said it to decide there are some problems that are that are there for Africans to solve, you know, mm -hmm. and the people who um owned the objects originally, owned, still own the objects. Um, it's just that the objects are far away. And then there are some problems. For instance, the issue of what are we going to do with all the empty museum space? I'm like, that's a wonderful thought to give to futurists, to give to artists, to give to anthropologists, to give to ethicists um, all over Europe, um, because they can think about um, what to do even with the idea of the museum, which was designed as a bastion of empire. Mm -hmm. And then there are some things that actually when they're asked, they're not adding value. They're not um, asking relevant questions. They're not, you know, but they're, they're just kind of thrown into the space to take up time um, and to waste people's, to waste people's very valid um very valid points of view. Um, mm. Then you just have spent half an hour talking about this thing that really it's neither here nor there and and it's really not going to add value. So we're very much of the opinion that Africans should really contend with the issues that are, that belong to us. So like, for instance, when we get objects that um, reflect 
histories that we don't want to admit having had. That's our problem. It's not mm-hmm. anybody else's problem. Mm-hmm. And then um, when it when it comes to what what there's even objects that nobody has heard about. There's objects that people won't admit to having. That's very much a Europe problem. Coming clean to yourself is a Europe problem, you know. Mm. And so I don't know, Jim. Is, is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we came into this topic, uh, probably in 2018, 2017, we found that the simplest way to divide things is European problems, African problems, and distractions. Everything fits into those three camps. Distractions mm-hmm. are, are, are such a tragedy in this case because you're wasting time for an urgent issue. Um, I, I don't know... I'm, I'm not sure why Europe wants to hold on to things. I feel like the world is ending and who wants to be saddled with archives when the world is ending? Do you want to be caught by the apocalypse holding all this stuff that doesn't even belong to you? Like they now are is 2008. Exactly. Now is the time to lighten up as a society. So for me, the idea of the absence that will be caused in Europe in Europe's spaces when they restitute things, for me, sounds like such an amazing opportunity because you're able to create new things rather than hold on to old things. For us, our absence is um, is premature because it is an absence of things that were taken away, which means that we don't have old things mm-hmm. and we are trying to we are trying to shape our identities to match a new world, but we don't have the thing that you need to build an identity, which is memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, the absence plays out differently. It means that um, we politicize our absence that is why our politicians are able to say that uh, homosexuality did not exist in Africa. And that's because we don't have the evidence to say otherwise. Or that Africa could, could never have had feminist values. Exactly. Yeah. And so I always say that by holding on to those things, you're literally causing loss of life. You're causing damage to people's lives because the, the current politics of Africa is shaped so much by that absence. Let go of stuff. Yeah. And then also, I, I really love that Jim brought up this idea of the end of the world, because like like for us, because we've dealt with, uh, even dealt with is, is, is unfair, because if not, we are in the process of, we are still processing the absence and what it means for our current lived experiences. Can you imagine at the end of the world saying, wait, 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 there's all this other stuff that we have to contend with still, like we didn't even process what it meant for this and we've mm. just realized that our culture would actually have been something else. So in many ways, the object absence is forcing us to mark time culturally mm-hmm. in ways that are that are exceedingly damaging and that even um, Europe kind of is refusing to run ahead um, mm-hmm. by also holding on to our things. So they are also marking time and everybody's marking time in these wholly unhelpful exceedingly silly ways. Um, And the worst thing about Europe is that then they design these programs that are designed to fix modern-day African problems, but they ignore the fact that many of those problems are caused by our history. So, for instance, to hear that there's a program uh, to make films that encourage Africans to stay in Africa, you know, Mm -hmm. tell them that immigration is a problem, tell them that Europe is not that great. I'm like, "That's, that's funny and that's cute, but the reason people are leaving Africa is because they believe that other societies have richer cultures. Mm. And even this idea of, um, of, of, of a richer culture, 
Um, I think it's it's incredibly important to note the patterns of immigration, why people immigrate according to certain language patterns, um, according to certain opportunity patterns, um, and 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 what and what what exactly those are saying. If these countries have kind of bought. Um, their performance of stability, whether it's economic stability or sociocultural stability, um, mm-hmm. on the backs of having created deep instabilities elsewhere and continuing to have a hand in these deep instabilities, um, you know, it's a, it's a very big problem. And so even even the idea of trying to do decolonial work when neo-colonial um, <laughs> agendas are still playing out. Um, you know, yeah. on, on on our current black presence, and will continue to play out on black futures, is crazy. Later in our conversation, Jim delved into a crucial aspect concerning the restitution of African objects. Listen closely. And to harken back to that thing that we said about their European problems and their African problems, the African problems are um, if they are objects in London for instance, that prove that pre-colonial same-sex desire was a thing. Do I live in a country where those objects are safe to come back, you know? Our neighbors in Uganda have just passed a bill called the Sexual Offenses Bill that is just like ridiculously, you know, homophobic and, and, and misogynistic and all those things. Are objects that refer to pre-colonial same-sex desire safe in Uganda? That's an African problem. Yeah. We will come back to queerness and object restitution later in the episode. During the second event of the discussion series and early in our conversation, Jim used the analogy of a sandbox to highlight that the restitution of objects is actually a very simple matter. So to go back to that analogy that we use often about the child, the playground and the children, um, the thing that's just struck me is that um, that toy, that object, mm-hmm. is not just like plastic wheels and, you know, colored, whatever. For a child, a toy is also memory. It's also emotion. A toy is who, did, who bought this toy for me? Was it Christmas? Was it my birthday? Why do I like this toy? Why is it my favorite toy? And all children have a thing that they remember when they were small. It was like dear to them in ways that were unimaginable to the mm-hmm. parent or to the teacher. So when this child takes a toy from someone else, you are taking also those memories, that love, that all those emotions. So let's apply that same logic to the adult version, which is what we are talking about here. When they took this stuff from people, they were not just taking wood and gold and silver and and rocks. They were also taking memories, they were taking uh, gifts, they were taking um, care, they were taking, um, you know, like the way people can infuse objects with care. Our relationship as human beings with objects is one of emotions. We, We transfer our emotions, we transfer our identity into objects. If you think of your home, Every little thing that you have in your home was either given to you or you bought it, but there was choice, there was love, there was exchange there. And so when I take come, come into your home and take those things away from you, I'm not just taking your IKEA desk, I'm taking the memory of who gave it to you and the work that you did on that object. So all the conflict that we have in Africa about identity, of course we have conflict because you took away the things that 
demonstrated care and love and all those mm-hmm. other things. We are human beings. Mm-hmm. And that's why Njoke and I have been talking so much about the emotions of this thing, which is a thing that people of color are asked to leave at the door. Come in with your logic, with your provenance research and all that neutral bullshit and leave the things that really matter outside the door. Um, I, I really love that you've kind of gone a little further with the child with the child and the toy analogy because when you were speaking, I was thinking in terms of how the provenance research then gets to be some sort of quasi-detective in this story of the child and the toy where they come and they say, so this toy was taken from you on this day, you know, or they come and they examine your home and they ask you, the place where you are, you want to store this toy, do you feel like it's adequate for the toy? Or do you, you have know? a receipt for who bought the toy for you? Yeah. Can you prove that the prove toy, that the was, toy yours? was yours? What? You know, and it doesn't matter like who was there watching when the toy was taken, the provenance research uh, um, detective comes later mm. to tell you that, oh, of course, no analogy is a thousand percent complete. And, 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 and even for us, we, we are very aware of the limits of, of using the word, a word like toy, because for us, the object um, is a symbol of multiple other things. For instance, um, there are also human remains that were taken mm-hmm. and you cannot refer to human remains as objects and you cannot also diminish them with, with, with a reference to toys and things like that. And also the lack of closure around mm-hmm. not having um, people to bury, around not having graves to commemorate. And that was what the colonialists were doing. They were, they were making nations and they were demarcating their own properties to engage with and to extract resources from. Um, and in order to do that, you had to destroy um, senses of identity from ethnic groups, which are already nations of their own, and then forcibly create um, a new nation for yourself. It wasn't even for the people there. So, of course, when for us, we're dealing with um, identity issues um, to this day, and then somebody comes and just says, it's just Africans the way they are. When you also look back at the histories of Europe and the ways in which they formed nation states were equally mm-hmm. violent. So, mm-hmm. of course, they projected all of that this way because even Europe has ethnic groups. But then you never hear about that now. Everything has just kind of been... Um, cutely conflated into ideas like race, you know. And then also, as regards even the toy, another limit um, with the toy analogy, even for the places where it works, it works brilliantly. But another limit for the toy analogy is that Europe didn't just come and take one toy from one child. They took not just toys and special things and things that have been imbued love. They took everything. They took the sand from the sand pit. They demolished the sand pit as well. You know, they went and sold the sand for money. And then now they come and ask why African children don't have a place to play. Right. People come and say, why is the, you know, why is, why is the cultural arena here so, you know, without mm-hmm. realizing that there's so, so many arid. histories behind, you know, why there's so many histories, why it is. And, and, and I guess maybe the thing I can, the thing I can, I, I can end by saying is this kind of fresh realization that it is not just Africans who are subject mm-hmm. to a neocolonial agenda. It's also Europe because the descendants of all of these people who took things and the, and the people, because the people who are alive now are the people in whose name, you know, the colonial agenda yeah. was visited upon yeah. myself, my ancestors, you know. And so for, for, for it is also active 
the colonial agenda in erasing itself such that people just imagine that they appeared somewhere mm. without mm. realizing how they got there without knowing exact it's not it's no accident that people have to go to university and have to be studying certain subjects then do certain electives to start to begin to fathom what violence colonialism was or even to contend with the idea that it existed in the first place and we've seen this kind of erasure with so many other things we have holocaust deniers you know they are so deniers of all sorts of yeah. things it's very easy to deny um even histories that have overwhelming um swaths of evidence like the entire like their entire nations which stand as testament to you know the destruction of colonialism and there still there will still be people who say that oh you know the colonialist brought a railway and representative democracy Just a little side note, during our recording session, we've lost track of time and luckily Jim had some extra time for us, but unfortunately, Njoki had to leave the convo a little bit earlier. Bye, Seven. Thank you. Bye, Njoki. Bye, Jim. While talking to Jim, I had to think about how black people's humanity is constantly contested and commodified. I think the thing is that you're... You've just said that um, it's as if the humanity of black people is questioned. And that's true. If you look at all the issues we are talking about here, even if you look at the, the idea of fossils, right? Fossils are people, right? And they were buried. And then we come and exhume them and say they are fossils. And so the question for us, me and Jokia have always been wondering, what is the line that separates a body from a fossil, Right? And just because a thing is dated to be several million years old, do we have a right to uncover those bodies and study them and poke them and break them and make casts out of them? How would we feel if 100 years from now people were unearthing us and saying, look, they had COVID, they had all these things. Um, and I see the same thing in the whole idea around the objects not being art. It took a long time for museums to consider African mm -hmm. objects to be art. They looked at they looked at these objects as if they were like the primitive uh, results of of subhuman people relating to one another, and it's only it's only a few years ago that people started to call it African art, and for me that's the same thing. It's like you're you're unable to see humanity in black people, and that's why you treat our culture as objects. That's why you treat our food as interesting tastes, but you're not interested in where that food came from. I have a friend who says that uh, it is black bodies that are contraband, but everything that we produce travels easily. So our objects can cross borders, our food, our music can cross borders, but the bodies cannot. They cannot, yeah, you're right. And it, yeah, humanity is something that is not like, humanity, humanity is not something that is... Um, given to Africans is just or to black people is um, something that is immediately and inherently connected or like uh, to whiteness like not my idea of humanity but um, I think mm. the, in, in this world which is a racist world uh, that definitely rings out to me um, because like you said before everything that is connected to blackness is not seen as um, as a full-blooded human being, as um, mm -hmm. as complex, 
as art mm. that is on the mm. same level and everything gets co-opted and commodif commodified and the crazy thing is even if black cultures black peoples uh ethnicities these people they originated these things but we own so little yeah while we were talking about the constant negotiations around black humanity We dive deeper into the topic also and quickly the, ended up in Germany's colonialist was, uh, past. Also, like when you grow up here in Germany, a um, lot of like children's books and ideas of Africa, I mean, even in the early 90s where I was a child, are still so much, so rooted in, in colonialist, um, racist, anti-black and orientalist imagery. And it doesn't necessarily get questioned. Yeah, um, I think it's I, it's really funny when I hear Germans say that that they did not have like a colonial history, um, and that the thing that Germany is ashamed of is the Holocaust. Because to me, Namibia was a precursor to the Holocaust. A lot of the tools that were used in the Holocaust were were refined in Namibia, um, and so what does Germany mean when they say, when they kind of um, create all these reparations and justice around the Holocaust, and then they completely ignore the genocide that inspired that. Yeah. Again, it's like the Namibians were not human. They were like a test tube situation that you could, you could do whatever you wanted to Namibians and not have to apologize. We talked about the limitations black people's humanity subjected to which led us to talk about the absence of African objects okay, depicting okay. queer we desires. about the objects um, that we're like showcasing same-sex desire or like ideas of love that are not confined by heteronormativity. I felt like um, that it was like really important for you to say, um, mm. to say that and to talk about the future of these objects because um, it's an African discussion, like people in that country have to or in that community have to find a way or solution to, on how to care yeah it's also very important that you said that because here in discussions that i had online with other um and i don't want to generalize i'm not saying that everybody is like that but with some mm. other black folks who are invested in the ideas of restitution and a liberated africa they have a lot of ahistorical and yeah. problematic and queerphobic views and ideas of pre-colonial African societies. Plus, oftentimes, like, empires get romanticized instead of, like... Yeah. Which I kind of understand when you grow up here and you never see yourself reflected in... You know, in Germany, when you go to school, for example, you don't you don't ever see a book with a black, like, I don't know, king or duke or whatever. But at the same time, um, true liberation means liberation for all people. I live in a society that's full of black people. But the thing you said about I, you don't get to see books with black kings, I don't get to see those either. So... Because of the absence, you see, it's actually more likely for you to be able to see the, the product of African royalty by visiting a German museum than I can. Yeah. I have to imagine it because I'm working with an absence. Um, so I feel like there's a false line that we draw between um, diasporic Africans mm -hmm. and continental Africans. That line for me is a lot of bullshit um, because um, functionally, technically, we bear the same kinds of weights 
in most in the ways that matter in terms of the questions of colonialism and racism it doesn't matter whether you live in sweden or uganda you're a black person and there's a weight that comes with living in a world that is not designed to honor blackness mm-hmm. it doesn't you know so i'm like that line is false uh, we are all we are all responsible to make blackness lighter um and we all carry different kinds of weight but weight nonetheless you know the wonderful thing about queerness um is that it is it really um destabilizes any simplistic narrative so for instance people say africans that there was no queerness in africa before colonialism mm-hmm. that's rubbish and mm-hmm. the, and the, the, a lot of the laws that are anti sodomy in africa were written by the british mm-hmm. so people say that that the west is bringing queerness to africa no it is homophobia that they brought first Mm-hmm. The thing that Europe now is trying to tell us about you guys need to get on board with these same sex rights is strange because you know it's kind of your fault that the legal position became like that and also you are holding objects that speak to queerness. Mm-hmm. So you're you're holding the evidence but you're asking us to to act on that evidence without seeing it. Like of course Africans are like you know this thing looks a bit suspect but have you looked at african art do you think there was no queerness have you seen the kind of things people were <laughs> like that is like and i mean queerness in terms of expanded the idea of just people who are imagining beyond what they could see people who are making the unseen visible for me that's that's queer as fuck i'm sorry that's that's like you know what i mean and so to imagine that you can say that that queerness was not african in terms of that freedom of spirit of imagination of course we were queer in fact i believe that uh, communities of color have a lot to teach the world about queerness i mean they say that africa is homophobic they say but uh, for instance in the coastal region of kenya when askers go down there to do queer studies we are taught so much about how queerness can be much more than lgbtq plus plus all those letters in the coastal region they obliterate those letters they are they are queerer than the queerest acronyms we can come with them from nairobi so there's such loss when we say that africa was this or that i feel like i feel like we have so much to learn from the past about how to be complex black free people Towards the end of our conversation, Jim and I talked about the past and the future, the work of our ancestors and decolonization. This these two things that we've said during this talk that respectability is not legitimacy mm-hmm. and legality is not justice. Mm-hmm. Um I think I actually think about it a little differently in terms of like um previous generations having this conversation before. I think they owe us. The gift that you give your children is not your labor. If you make your children do your labor, there's something you something is wrong, right? So the labor that you and I are doing here, sitting here and explaining 
the injustice of something as ridiculously simple as object movement is the work of generations that have already left. The fact that you are in German instead of Eritrea is the work of generations that came before us, you know, mm -hmm. because it was their job to decolonize. Mm -hmm. Right? It was their job to receive independence and say, you know what, now that we are free, this border doesn't work for us. We're going to redraw this border. We're going to create our own country and call it our own thing. Mm -hmm. I live in a country that has a lake called Lake Victoria after the Queen of England. Why is that lake still called Victoria? It means that on some level, I live in a country that was designed for us by the British. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for people to be living in a country that they did not design? That's not my work in 2021. That was the work of my great-great-grandfathers, mm -hmm. right? It was not me who saw their soldiers leaving. Mm -hmm. So I do have a lot of resentment about mm -hmm. us having to do this work because you and I, we should be looking at the future. We should be talking about True. robotics and AI and space and all these cool things. Yeah. Instead, we're here talking about dusty objects that was taken from our grandparents. Yeah, that's true. No, you're 100% right. And actually what you just said reminded me of um, a quote by Malcolm X because he once said the future belongs to those who prepare it for today and exactly. I think that is just it just summarizes what you uh, <laughs> just so eloquently described no and I also feel like yes it's kind of sad that we still have to talk about these things that generations before us talked about thought about wrote about demanded but mm -hmm. um, at the same time It just also um, kind of reinforces this idea in my head that it's always it's always good to think about the future and build for the future mm -hmm. and for exactly. future generations, but also kind of like take a glimpse in the past just to learn from um, from the past and yeah. because a lot of times things repeat again. Uh, it can be good things, but also like bad things. I mean. I mean, not only bad, but like really horrible. The, mis the example yeah. that you've um, um, mentioned with uh, Namibia being like the genocide in Namibia being like a groundwork to what the yeah. Germans did later on um, during the Nazi era and yeah. uh, the Shoah. So, yeah. So the reason I'm doing these discussions and showing up to these uh, things is not because I enjoy the... the the question of object return, it's that, it's that our, it's our job not to pass this on to our kids. The thing that I'm taking away from this talk is, uh, is that just because Njoki and I are uh, somewhat eloquent about this issue does not mean that we are legitimate representatives. We are talking on behalf of many, many people who are feeling the absence quite strongly. So if you're in Germany and you think that this issue is anything but a simple justice question, I invite you to have um, a little bit of intellectual humility to start, to start your thoughts with, I don't know, right? That's a thing that we can all um, benefit from. I don't know either. I'm just doing, I'm, I'm doing the work of my, my ancestors here and I wish I didn't have to. <laughs> Jim so much for taking your time for taking your extra time again to talk to us 
it was such an enlightening talk. I had so much fun with you and Jockey. And um, before I just um, end our uh, podcast uh, talk, I wanted to ask you if there are ways to connect with the Nest Collective or there are ways for our listeners to get in touch with your projects. Uh Uh, first of all, thank you for having both of us. Uh, we always You're love welcome. to unpack uh, these thoughts uh, with people we feel that we have a shared kind of worldview with. And then two, <laughs> to connect <laughs> to the Nest Collective, the easiest way is to visit our website, which is thisisthenest.com. And there you can find a lot of information about our projects, the past projects and current projects, and connect with our social channels and all that stuff. Yeah, you're also on Instagram, right? So yeah, we are on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we are, we're everywhere generally as This is the Nest. This podcast is a production of the Humboldt Forum 2021. We want to thank you, our listeners, and our guests Njoki Ngumi and Jim Chuchu. I also want to thank our curatorial team, Michael and Julia, and our sound designer, Annalene. See you next time at 99 Questions. Thank you.